Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guests again this week are Samuel Bonder and Linda Groves Bonder. Um, if you happen to be watching this interview without having seen the one I did previously, which was also with Samuel and Linda, you might want to watch that one first, because this one will sort of springboard off of that one. And uh, if you don't know where that interview is, just go to batgap.com and take a look at Samuel <coughs> and Linda's uh, section on there, and you'll see both of them, and you can start with number one. It's been a, less than a week since your interview was up on my site. There have been about 400 or so people have listened to the audio, and maybe last time I checked, about 150 people have watched the video, which went up several days after the audio. And uh, I must say, it, it stirred up a lot of discussion. There's something in the Bible where Jesus says, rather you're hot or cold, just don't be lukewarm, you know, or I'll spit you out. I would say that that pretty much typifies the responses to this interview. Some, some were saying, it's the best interview you've done. I loved it. Totally great. You, Samuel was so articulate and he expresses his story of awakening in such a clear and interesting way and yada yada. And Linda was all heart. And then other people were saying things like, uh, that's not even low on my list. That interview isn't even on my list. You know, I, I can totally not relate to them. So, <laughs> Such is life, right? Yeah, right. Different strokes for different folks. And uh, there was a lot of discussion. There were about 41 posts to the uh, chat group on backgap.com, and I got a lot of emails, and I didn't even have a ch chance to read them all yet, much less put them all into a really coherent, organized, distilled form from which I could extract questions. But in reading a lot of them, uh, I got the impression that one of the main kind of points of contention, and people were kind of arguing back and forth on this, is the whole idea of the continuation of ego after enlightenment, or whether ego needs to be destroyed in order to awaken. And one guy quoted Eckhart Tolle, and some guy, and Muji, and Adyashanti, and, and others as saying uh, it does. He quoted Ramana Maharshi as saying, if you seek the ego, you will find it does not exist. That is the way to destroy it. Liberation is the extinction of the ego, with form, without form, or both, with and without form. Um, and uh, he went on to say, you know, in, in, the, in the ancient Vedic tradition, there were great kings and people of, of worldly, you know, life who were acknowledged as highly enlightened. And so what's the big deal about having to, uh, you know, make a practice of, of waking down? It seems like <coughs> it happens. Other people said this, too. It seems like it happens naturally. Why do you have to do anything to have it happen? Aren't you going to naturally sort of integrate into your body and into your worldly life after awakening? That's enough of a mouthful to start you with. Why don't you run with that, and we'll we'll take it from there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I'll start in, and we'll see where we go. I'm glad people picked up on that. I'd say that's that's one of the elements of the traditional notion of enlightenment that we're respectfully taking issue with. And uh, yeah, there are a number of things you could say about it uh, in terms of the various things that, that uh, people were pointing out there. If your own awakening process, if you feel impelled toward an extinction of ego, you know, we're definitely not the concept of enlightenment you should be pursuing. We're, we're on a different track, and we acknowledge that that more traditional in many ways, venerable ancient track uh, has its validity in its own worldview. Uh, as, as we were talking about 
last time, we're really proposing that a new worldview appears to be opening up here. I mean, on one level, the teaching that I was most associated with in my years of seeking, Adi Das, it, it kind of straddled the fence between the two approaches. There was an acknowledgement of the continuation of ego, at, at least in himself, uh, while at the same time, more and more as he went on in years, uh, he was talking about being an egoless personal presence. I'm not trying, we're not trying to square our views up with and justify them to any other tradition, ancient or contemporary. We're just working with what has actually taken place in our own lives and what we see in the lives of others who find our work appealing and who, as it turns out, are themselves motivated toward what winds up being a different worldview, a different way of being present and participating in life. And in that perspective, what we see again and again is a couple of things that you, you brought up, and I'm remembering from, from several there. One is that the sense of the personal I and the, the feeling of a fundamental identification with it does not have to be extinguished for great realization to emerge. Is that therefore the same as the traditional realizations that require the ego to be extinguished? No, we always acknowledge this is different. We're happy with that inclusion. We feel that this may be an approach that is actually going to make great realization available to more and more people. And as I said last week, from the perspective of the worldview that opens up, we question the ultimate long-term evolutionary validity of the ancient concepts and where they sprang from. Another and maybe more practical point is that for those who are wondering why can't integration just happen naturally, well, for some people, maybe it can. Again, Linda and I are living this process and also serving it in others, in the trenches. We wind up doing a lot of triage, in effect, emotionally, psychologically, existentially, especially in some cases, people who have gone through profound awakening and are finding the integration process on a spectrum of challenging, ranging from a little to extreme. Mm -hmm. So they, they need the help. In fact, we, have a, mm -hmm. we call the process wake down, shake down. That's one of our friendly names for it. It's not very technical. But we, right now, we have a wake down, shake down navigation coaching process that we're leading a number of people through. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, who have gone through things like that before. So, yeah, that I was going to mention this intensive program that we do with individuals specifically linking around what happens after realization or what we call second birth realization, which is the realization of consciousness in form, in the body, every part of who you are. You do not have to perfect any particular piece in order to live that non-dual marriage of consciousness and matter. I was working with a, a woman yesterday, and she actually asked a, a beautiful question. She's participating in one of our intensive programs around integrating these uh, shadow pieces, wake down, shake down pieces after her awakening. And she questioned, what is the importance, do you feel, 
of the transmission, the ongoing transmission of the waking down and mutuality work for individuals who have had their, their realization. And I said, very important. The reason I say that is, is that that transmission of being is an activating force that enables individuals to integrate more quickly. And also, it's not merely just about transmission, it's about living a life in mutuality, living a life where you know you have your tribe in place, your support team that could consist of a senior teacher, a teacher, a mentor, a therapist perhaps, definitely a peer group that you talk to, maybe do sittings with, do mutual gazing with each other. This is a very important aspect of this integration process after awakening. I guess what rankles some people is if they are if they have a strong, you know, lo- sense of loyalty or adherence to the ancient tradition, you know, if they if, if they feel like you know, that's really the template against which everything else should be judged, then, you know, they can't help but have a problem with what you're doing, you know, because you, you are admittedly kind of a maverick and uh, you're, you're kind of, str- you, know, you feel that there's new territory to be explored and you're exploring it. So, and you are certainly within your rights to feel that. And uh, it's not for me to say that you shouldn't, certainly. Uh, but it's, it's just that that's never going to, that's never going to uh, sit well with, with people who just sort of feel like, you know, the, the ancient tradition is, was perfect and can't be improved upon. Yeah, thank you. And we agree. Yeah, totally agree. And blessings on anybody's journey. What really is, I feel the most important thing for any individual to consider for themselves and to continue to do their investigations and their deep discrimination is what is singing true to my heart? What is my truth? And and how do I move in the world that really supports me in that spiritual seeking or in the living of a realization. Mm -hmm. And that can be based on very ancient traditions. Many, many people are involved in many ancient traditions. And we honor that. We honor the foundation in which we've come, you know, in certain aspects of this work. And we're also, just us personally and the Waking Down and Mutuality work, we feel that we are doing a hybrid kind of like a melding of east and west traditions you know there are aspects of the work that are very traditional and yet there are also aspects that are very new very very westernized bringing it into our our culture now and being able to distinguish what how you're splitting off from spirit if you feel that spirit is the more primary aspect of a realization and how you you may not be embodying pieces of your own realization you know we talked a little bit about that last week with you yeah uh, this this place of the spirit matter split for us spirit and matter are equally important and part of the the whole equation so. Yeah. Well, since I'm going to be throwing some more skeptical responses at you, here's another nice one, <laughs> uh, which is in line with what you were just saying. Some guy said, I love this interview. Very well done, Samuel and Linda. I felt particularly moved by the vulnerable wisdom that is such a rare thing among awake, quote unquote, awakened individuals. This was a much needed antidote to the fixed dualistic positions of the no self realizers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Thank so you. again, 
you know, whoever wrote that, thank you very much. We appreciate it. To go back to, to what you were bringing up earlier and some people's concerns about that, one of the points I make in the book Healing the Spirit Matters Split, my interviewer was asking a somewhat similar question. How can you go against 5,000 years of tradition? And my point about it was, again, where I started off in my, as I told the story of my awakening process, was acknowledging that spirituality appears to be not only evolutionary, but is itself evolving. To me, what we represent is another moment, potentially, of that evolution. Now, do we know what we're doing has ultimate significance? Could it be somehow disproved someday? Who knows? We yeah, I mean, someday uh, might, you might even say, hey, I, I no longer have any self, sense of a personal self. You know, it just finally went poof. I mean, are you open to that possibility? Well, I'm not only open to it. <laughs> I actually, I espouse that. The evolutionary view or the developmental model that I have for the work assumes <laughs> that uh, people grow in the context of awakening. And what I see is that chronologically and as a person matures in their fuller expression and particularly as you move toward later maturity and eldership in this life and <laughs> there's more and more of a, of a let go and a refinement and very likely there will be less and less of the local personal self moving into life mm -hmm. so to me that makes great sense it, it is however a different picture of how the whole process can emerge. Yeah. And the other, the other point, though, that I wanted to make uh, for people to consider along the lines of what Linda was saying is that if you actually examine the history of how these traditions themselves emerged, and there's a great book uh, called The Great Transformation, The Beginnings of Our Religious Traditions by Karen Armstrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a profound book. She is herself a mystic practitioner and a great historian. And she goes into depth and detail about what happened in India with Buddhism and the Upanishadic sages, what happened in Israel with the great prophets, what happened in Greece, what happened in China. And time and again, what you see in these ancient venerable <laughs> traditions is that when they emerged, somebody was a revolutionary in relation to what had come before. Mm -hmm. The Buddha, as an example, I mean, he was well-known in his time for radically departing, diverging from the established Indian traditions of the day. You know, without going into, well, are you saying you're the Buddha? <laughs> Let's not. What, we're, what we are pointing out is that both acknowledged great religious figures and small secondary ones in their time, whatever, uh, there has been an evolutionary progress through the ages and the the traditions each of them if you go into the details people are innovating people are taking new steps people are daring to consider things differently even while paying homage to what's come before mm -hmm. so one of the ways that I frame it is our way of paying homage to those who've come before I think I mentioned this last week is a little bit more like the scientist who said if I'm Seeing far, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. I think That's how we feel. If we're seeing far, we're, 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 we're acknowledging where we've come from. They made us possible. Mm -hmm. 
Do you want to add anything to that, Linda, or shall I ask another question? Yeah, just real quick. Those traditions and, and every place in your life adds to what makes us individually possible, the work possible. Everything that anyone ever experiences has led them to what they're living in any given moment. And so it's, it's important to acknowledge not only the, the great traditions and, and even mm-hmm. your own particular religious belief systems prior to an awakening or an urge to seek. Like, for instance, last time I was talking about my, my Catholic background. I'm very grateful for my Catholic background. It helps me land more fully as me and discriminate what works for me now in this time and what doesn't. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing for each body to acknowledge is their entire history. Each morning when I sit down at my computer, I look at the latest NASA photo of the day. They put up a new one each day. Did I mention this last week? That's cool. Uh, and, and so I start out kind of just looking at a picture of a galaxy or maybe a cluster of galaxies or something. <laughs> and, and I just kind of you know, briefly contemplate how significant my personal dramas are in the light of the, the vast expanse of time and space that we live in, actually, without being aware of it. And, you know, I can extend that not only from my personal dramas, but our whole drama as a planet, you know, as civilizations and so on. Who knows what's out there? Who knows how many forms of spirituality there may be, which if we were actually to take a look at them, we might consider vastly superior to our own or, you know, whatever, just or vastly different from our own and yet, uh, you know, significant in their own right. So the way I see it, Sure, there are some things which seem to be more effective than others or more clear than others or or whatever, but people naturally gravitate toward whatever is appropriate for them mm-hmm. uh, and whatever is going to be useful for them. And, and are they going to be doing that for all eternity? Probably not. <laughs> you know. yeah, that's right. You know. As you say, I mean, your Catholic background was, you appreciated it. It was a stepping stone. If you had been a Hare Krishna or something, you could probably say the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, so to me it's not like ultimately significant whether a teacher is saying, you know, that your ego completely dissolves or doesn't or something or other. If he's wrong, if it does completely dissolve for real, complete, genuine enlightenment to be there, then that'll happen when it happens, and maybe even to the guy who's saying it doesn't need to, mm-hmm. including to his followers or whatever. But Yeah, and I have to pipe up a lot of the turmoil in spirituality, not only in our time but through the ages, has had to do with people proclaiming or being proclaimed to have had their ego completely dissolved or destroyed or extinguished, mm-hmm. And then showing up in ways that made it very, very difficult for their followers and or others to comprehend that could, how that could be so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, this is, to me, all of this is up for viable and creative and really healthful debate. Which is a scientific, that. actually a scientific approach, you know? Yeah, It's Absolutely. like nothing is static. Everything is open to investigation. Yeah. Everything is to some extent a theory, and theories are never proven. They're just sort of buttressed right. or, or, or dismantled according to new evidence. That's right. Right. One of the questions I love to ask my students sometimes in, in our work together is, can you just hold open the possibility 
of this or that, you know, as right. as a possible occurrence, e- either in an awakening process or or just in how you deal with your life situation and some of the shadow pieces or some of the difficulties of being in relationship, holding open just the possibility that there can be change or that there can be even more of a, a landing or a realization in the context of even a broken zone. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I'd like to ask the question back, holding open to the to these individuals, holding open the possibility that the ego actually can exist in the context of great realization. That the ego itself is realized. And so that that brings mm-hmm. in another whole piece of conversation, I think, that many of us are living, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 places for people to question that and to maybe just hold open that possibility. I think part of the issue is semantic. It's like we, yes. we're, we're going to be banding yeah. about this ego. Term. What do we really mean yeah. by it? I mean, one yeah. guy sent in a nice thing. He, he calls himself Snow Leopard on the chat. Uh, he said, my particular definition of ego is simply a personal identification with the body-mind. That in and of itself is not a problem. The problem is uh-huh. that this uh-huh. ego can identify so totally with the body-mind that it actually believes itself to be exclusively the body-mind yes. and that it's running the show and in control. This is being egocentric. Yes. Charlie, Charlie Sheen comes to mind, he says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and thus it becomes very attached to all of the body-mind's paraphernalia concepts and toys, and he goes on to elaborate. Yeah, uh, but, you know, it's, so, it's sort of like there's a you know, certain amount of salt you might want to put on your vegetables that, that makes them tasty, and, and, but beyond that, you know, uh, it, it ruins them. Yeah, and th- yeah. Uh, you know, I'm that's, really that's great. Uh, a very good point, and I think we talked about that a little last uh, in the last conversation also, that we completely agree, <clears throat> egocentricity, self-absorption, and, and the the phenomena of selfishness and incapacity to encounter and be with and honor others, that level of ego. Uh, <laughs> doesn't survive very well in waking down in mutuality. Yeah. That, that does, we, we're inviting people to take greater and greater responsibility and clearly transcend, go beyond that. Mm-hmm. But the, the point that Snow Leopard was making there about the simple fact of being able to say the word I in reference to the body-mind and have a basic sense of ownership, stewardship, responsibility, a fundamental identification, does that need to be destroyed and all of the factors of mind that go along with it in order for realization to be well established? We're suggesting at least our version of realization, no, and we also cheerfully acknowledge that what we mean by that, therefore, is different from what many people mean more traditionally. I mean, I, th- I think you could probably take the most enlightened guy in the world, and if somebody came and said, hey, there's a guy outside spray-painting your car, you know, he would get up and <laughs> try to do something about it. You know, there's a sense of ownership. There's a sense of, of you know, my car. And, uh, uh, and there's a sense of I to the extent that 
you know, he knows who, who, who's being addressed and he responds accordingly. Now, of course, that's just from my perspective of, you know, still having a sense of I and I'm open to the possibility that a realization may occur where there's just this sort of something that's as spontaneous as the heart beating uh, that just sort of makes the body get up and go attend to the situation, but there's no personal doership involved. It's just like, you know, complete sense of not being involved and, and, and there's just a sort of a, a knee-jerk response to every situation. I don't know. I've actually had moments that were like that in my life, um, you know, where you feel like you're completely on automatic and things are just kind of happening without any sort of volition or, or intervention from any anything that can be recognized as an individual. Uh, but it's certainly not my all-time reality. If it if it becomes that, I'll probably change the whole theme of these interviews. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, you probably would. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that brings up a question for me too around that, and that is if and when that happens for an individual, where does the deep, deep empathy, compassion, and and feeling sense and heart and and emotion go? to all creatures that that's that's one thing i question yeah tim freak has a nice phrase you know who tim freak is uh he's a british tim freak you know him british fellow i interviewed a while back he's written a bunch of books but anyway his his one of his pet phrases is love is how oneness feels Mm -hmm. yeah thank you Mm -hmm. thank you well you know you you mentioned uh back there a little bit ramana maharshi Mm -hmm. and again ramana was extremely important to me, and is. When I was uh, a student of his work, uh, I devoured everything I could find about him. I mean, I read all the books and many of the magazines from the ashram that grew up around him. There there are several interesting pictures here about him. One was that he would never formally assume identification with the I of a separate self. In, In himself, you mean? In himself. Right, right. And that, that included, he would never openly acknowledge to someone, I am your guru. And there was this great story about this one uh, big British guy, an ex-soldier, who tried to pin him down. Major Chadwick, he was called. And finally, he kept trying to get Ramana to say, I am your guru. And, and Ramana wouldn't do it, and finally he drew himself up to full mountain presence and said to somebody else, what, does he want an affidavit? <laughs> Still wouldn't do it. At the same time, speaking of the love and the compassion, when he heard that a bird had hit the window and died outside the meditation hall, tears would stream down his cheeks. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was the soul of loving compassion and loving kindness mm-hmm. in his relations with people. But he would rigorously rigorously insist that the local personal ego sense, that whole structure and dynamic of mind, had dissolved. Mm -hmm. Another thing about him that's not so well known in the kind of well-broadcast tradition is that he could be pretty testy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was uh, well known among those who were there for getting quite angry in the kitchen because he would help make the food. He he was blessing it. And if somebody Mm -hmm. messed something up, he'd He'd get fierce. Yeah. So, you know, again, <laughs> it, it gives us room to contemplate, like you were saying, what do we mean? What are the different meanings we have in mind 
compared to one another, which is what I'm pointing to here, what is the actual life of an individual who's really living this out? I mean, I remember seeing a video of the Dalai Lama, who again is the soul of loving kindness and forgiveness and tolerance, and I so honor him. I so profoundly honor his holding of responsibility for an entire sacred culture and what he's had to do in his lifetime and how impeccably he's done it. And the story I'm referring to, to me, is part of that impeccability. It happened to be a video of him instructing some of his senior monks. And he was ferocious. He was intense. And, you know, that doesn't come out in his public persona for very good reasons, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But I'm just wanting to make room. I mean, we're talking about ego right now. Another thing that's very forbidden in much of spirituality today is anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anything like it. So I happen to be mentioning these two characters who were capable of showing some. Yeah, well, I hung around Maharishi a lot, and, and he would go into white-hot rages, to use that term, uh, on you know, f fairly frequent occasions. I've seen Ama do the same thing. Um, you know, so it's, you know, no one's... I guess what we're saying is, people, enlightened or not, people have normal human emotions yeah, and yeah. anger anger is one of those now you know if you could see them from the inside mm -hmm. uh you know perhaps you would find that or if you could step into their shoes as they were you know yelling at the cook or something you you might find that there's a, a quiet silent you know witness that is not angry and not even touched by that anger it's mm -hmm. just the body is going through the motions of anger according to the appropriateness of the circumstances right mm -hmm. yeah a couple more points about ramana he used to read the newspaper every day he used to read he listened to the radio he was very concerned about world affairs he also you know had his devotional side as did nisargadatta nisargadatta used to engage in loud boisterous bhajan singing after the, the most of the people had left you know with a smaller cluster of disciples who were into a more devotional perspective and um, I remember reading recently someone asking Ramana about, well, do all these gods exist, you know, Shiva and all these different levels of creation? And he said, they exist as much as we exist. You know, they can be interacted with and, you know, one can devote oneself if one wishes to mm -hmm. some, something like that. I just want to, I'm going on a little long with this particular comeback, but I want to throw in one more thing. And that is that there's a, there's a term in Sanskrit called mithya, M-I-T-H-Y-A, which means dependent reality. And the explanation of it, you probably are familiar with it, is that, uh, let's say, a pot is nothing but clay. And so in, in ultimately, essentially, there is no pot. There's just clay. But obviously, there's a pot. You know, it can hold things. Uh, it, the clay has taken the shape of a pot. So, I mean, we can say perhaps that, you know, there is no creation, there is no ego, all this fuss about ego is ultimately, th those people are right. There is, none of that ultimately, essentially, when you get right down to the nitty-gritty, exists, and yet it does at the same time, you know, in a sort of dependent reality kind of way. You know, just as the pot as a pot and, and clay as clay coexists very harmoniously, so does the, you know, the vast diversity of creation and all the concepts and components and whatnot that we care to discuss exist with the fact that on some level, and, and a physicist could tell us this, it's all just sort of pure unmanifest, you know, potentiality. Yeah. In terms of living out our lives and in terms of what this really means for people, uh, part of our witness and what we offer into the mix here is that we see a lot of people who kind of hole up in those concepts and aren't actually noticing 
what's underneath. Mm. They're not noticing that they're reactively way holding up on the spirit side of the spirit matter split. So the need to affirm that none of this exists, it's a little bit like that bit from Shakespeare, you know, methinks the lady doth protest too much. I mean, why is it so important to have to affirm that? What about being here as a body-mind person uh, is so difficult? We acknowledge a lot about it is difficult. We're not proposing people should just be at ease, but we're suggesting that there may be deeper investigations for people to make, and we spend most of our time working with and serving and being helped ourselves by people who are looking for a deeper integration or what we see as one. There's the mystery. It really is paradox. It's mysterious. Uh, How can any one individual say this is absolutely how it is? Yeah. Mysterious. Adyashanti was here this week and he made a big point of that, you know, just sort of getting down to the, the level of being comfortable and really not knowing anything with, with certainty, you know, um, and just enjoying living in the mystery and, and, and how actually that ends up paradoxically being a much more secure place to be than glomming on to some, you know, certainty in some particular concept or worldview. I mean, why are fundamentalists of any stripe so... Yeah fanatical about you know being against this perspective or this religion or you know or this that or the other thing i always feel like it's because there there's an insecurity uh and they're defending their lack of a genuine grounding in the stuff they talk about whatever that may be you know if they were really living it they'd be comfortable with with everything it would just sort of like flow through them mm-hmm. yeah. interesting point yeah. yeah, I love that point, too, earlier when you were talking about how, you know, it, take anger, for instance, some, one experiences, like Ama, perhaps, experiencing the anger, allowing the body-mind to express that in relationship, and yet there is the place in her or, or, and others in a realization where you are observing, you are not affected by the anger. That's one of the the ways we work with individuals, even in the second birth awakening, being able to be that, be the the witness or be be that conscious nature, but yet also fully allow your humanness to be present also. So you can have both. Mm -hmm. That's that's what this non-dual conscious embodiment awakening Mm -hmm. is about for us, you know, being able to notice, 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 be that and that simultaneously. And also, and this, this is another detail, I think, in which our quality of the awakened life may differ from others. Most people who I'm aware of, of the dozens and hundreds who've gone through this general kind of transition, most of them notice that the quality of a witness being apart somehow yeah. really dissolves. Yeah. yeah. There is, however, the intrinsic freedom. I mean, when Linda and I go through stuff, I mean, it's a paradox. We're really just being it, and the being and knowing of that freedom is intrinsic. So far, it doesn't seem to be corruptible. So we're 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 surrendered mm-hmm. into the living out of a life 
that has also got this white hot conscious yeah. beingness to it that's yeah. delicious and free and we're free to get upset when things upset us we've certainly we just had some interesting upsets this very week not between us but you know life delivers its stuff stuff happens yeah, yeah. the thing about that too is that there is so much life and juice even in in the difficult encounter even more so now for me than ever before you know i i don't know if i would want to live a life that's just complacent and flat i i love the ups and downs of being human but being divinely human and being very realized in the midst of those ups and downs that's what gets yeah. you through the day and that's what opens your heart up to gleaning what others are going through as well you know, we we talk so much about mutuality in our work you know and how others you can you can feel what they're going through you can actually help them process it and go mm -hmm. through it uh, more readily if you're actually allowing yourself to fully go there yourself so mm -hmm. and then you you play you know you dance with each other it's so juicy yeah, I haven't gone to a lot of, you know, Advaita meetings or talks or anything like that. But one critique I have heard from some people is that there there does seem to be a syndrome in in some among some people at least where there's a sort of a, a flatness or an emotionlessness or a sort of a, a disinterestedness or you know, a kind of a, a dulling down of the vibrancy of the personality that perhaps is the outcome of of as we were saying a little bit earlier, a sort of a a little bit of a fundamentalist adherence to concepts rather than an actual full living of what those concepts point to. Uh, and and in my experience, the people that I've run into in life that I would consider the, quote, most enlightened have had very kind of vibrant personalities and had a kind of a natural innocence and enthusiasm for all kinds of things. And, um, and also, like, there's, well, like taking Ama for an example, you know, just charming and fascinating personalities interesting to watch her and and there's this sort of flexibility or malleability you can watch her sort of giving darshan and watching the hundreds of people come up and one moment she'll be crying and next moment she'll be angry at her swami over something or next moment she'll be laughing her head off and you know and and, and just sort of you know like clouds going across the sun on a windy day just uh, yeah. yeah no rigidity and I, I, I tend to be a little bit long-winded today, but let me just throw in one, <laughs> one analogy that's sort of used in the Indian tradition, which is that, you know, if, if, uh, if you make a mark on a stone, it's, it's hard to make the mark, and it stays there a long time. If you make it on sand, let's say, it's easier to make, and it doesn't stay there as long. If you make it in water, it's a lot easier to make, or, or perhaps even air, very easy to make, and it, it just disappears the moment you make it. You know, so I, I'd say the more you can see what this analogy is pointing at, the the more established in in pure awareness or whatever we are genuinely, the more it's it's not that uh, we don't experience things deeply and richly. It's easier to make a deep mark in sand than it is in stone, uh, but also they don't etch permanent grooves in our in our nervous system as we were able to sort of move right on to the next thing. Yeah. yeah, it's actually, it's, beautiful. A, it's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. It's a very beautiful analogy. Any uh, lingering thoughts about what we've discussed before I shift gears a little bit? Well, there was something that came to mind a minute ago, but it, 
It wasn't etched very deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If it oh, comes I know. Back, oh, okay, actually, good. <laughs> this, is, this is, I think, very relevant. Because I, I think talking about ego or no ego in the abstract can give the impression that our work is one in which we're basically just indulging people in being who they've already been all their lives and giving them the impression there's some kind of awakening that goes with that. There is, in fact, a <laughs> profound process, and this is part of what I am grateful to have inherited from both Ramana Maharshi and Adi Da, and then further innovated and clarified and, and come up with new forms for. It's a very profound process of the direct investigation and exploration of the transcendent nature of being mm -hmm. that is required in this quality of realization. Now, some of the waking down teachers might require it more than others, and ours is a democracy. We're not in control of it. So, you know, I, I'm not going to vouch for every single awakening that's happened and say, yeah, it has to have been this way. But for Linda and me, certainly, and many others, and the general agreement is in the work, that people have to do the waking aspect of this. Mm -hmm. It's not just about being down here and being your ego and being really mutual and loving one another and communicating right. straight. There has to be this access to the great transcendent ground of being. And the reason this came up as you were speaking, Rick, is because we've noticed in many cases that people, when they are cultivating that awareness pretty spontaneously, not by trying to be without affect or cool or flat or emotionless, quite spontaneously in a natural way for a period of time while they're intensifying that identification with the ground, the rest of life goes pale. It goes flat. It goes stale. They find nothing compelling for them. I remember one of the first people I worked with, who's a very, in her expression now as a teacher for many years herself, Rini Hansen is her name. She's very warm and engaging and loving. But there was a period of time when everything just went dry while she was deepening in this, this uh, and, and, and becoming enriched in that identification with the infinite ground. So what we see is that that kind of quality has its place. But for some people, they may need to hang out there for a very long time. And we're not making that wrong. But it does produce different qualities among groups who might be doing that. True. And I, I suspect that some people hang out there longer than they might really benefit from doing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, who's, to, who's to say what an individual's path is Maybe supposed so. to be? But it's, it, it, sometimes it almost seems, you know, to put it bluntly, like they got stuck there. Yeah. You know, and that it wouldn't hurt for them to shake loose from that. Yeah. Who was it? Uh, Jim Carrey, I think, said at one point. Uh, he no, it wasn't Jim Carrey. It's this great st comedian named Stephen Wright. He he said uh, he he broke up with his girlfriend because he wasn't really into meditation and she really wasn't into being alive. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. That kind of says it, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, there's what so, before we ahead. shift gears there's uh -huh. one thing i want to address which you brought in a, a little earlier in this whole conversation and that that was part of the question about from someone about how 
you know, is it, aren't we just, it's kind of like, aren't we all just one anyway? You know, why do we have to do anything in order to realize ourselves? And fundamentally, I guess, you know, in the great scheme of creation, true, yes, we all, we all are one, we are all interconnected, but individuals are driven to seek to fill something that they have not realized yet. And so as long as that drive in, in any individual is there to realize, to know, to be more grounded, to be more of an authentic, integral human being showing up in the world, mm-hmm. then that, that drive has to be fulfilled by ways of being practices or disciplines or, or, or ways to fill the, those voids in any one person. So each person, again, needs to find their own unique way what that is. For some, there are very graceful moments that you don't have to do anything in order to have these graceful states come in. But for many, that's not the case. Yeah, uh, Marshi used to refer to the very purpose of creation as the expansion of happiness. He said that that was sort of the ultimate driving force, you know, which brought about manifestation of the universe in the first place, and that we were all sort of, you know, deeply uh, motivated by that drive, evolutionary impulse, or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. and um, so that it wasn't advisable to deny that or try to thwart it it in the name of, you know, having arrived, you know. Thank right, you. right. Yeah. Some some person said, "What is white hot yoga?" I, I like simple as a state of full awareness should be. Um, mutual white hot waking down sounds pretty complicated to me, and I'm, I'm sure that what you're referring to is neither white nor hot. You know, it's just a metaphor <laughs> that you're you're trying to use to describe something. So, what actually are you are you referring to there? Yeah, actually, we've had some great discussions about this uh, uh, in our work, including among the more advanced or senior teachers. That's right. White hot is, uh, in this case, metaphorical, although corresponds to some of the ways that the this quality of further intensification of the the unity of spirit and matter, the unity of conscious and ph- consciousness and phenomena. Uh, one of the uh, teachers, Ted Strauss, who you've interviewed. His, his best phrase for it is a little more practically descriptive. There's a sense of an absolute fusion that takes place, that, that becomes the, the, the baseline, the given of life. Fusion between? Between consciousness and phenomena, between matter and spirit. Okay. In other words, there can be a unity while there is still some sense of, well, the, be, the better way to say it is that the the awareness, the subjective awareness of the union can go through an intensification. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways that I've tried to make a picture of it, because we're, we're getting into the land where poetry is pretty much at least as useful, maybe better, than trying to be technical and descriptive. But it's as if in the, the Great Awakening that we call the second birth, this fundamental unity of spirit and matter, it really is just a beginning. We could shift gears and uh, picture it more as, say, the wedding ceremony mm-hmm. of what appear to be opposite or different kinds of beings. And that white-hot quality or that sense of absolute fusion then would be what could arise in the 
consummation of the marriage. Hmm. There's, a, there's a greater intensification. There, there's a lot we could say about it. It's something that I inherited through my time with Adi Da. Did he use that uh, phrase? He didn't use the phrase exactly in that way. He had different language, and for all I know, he was referring to something completely different. But it's, it's the best analogy I find from the sources that I'm aware of. The point here is that, to come back to the original question, I know generally we want simplicity. Many of us do. But evolution is increasing complexity also. And many of these traditions have found it very necessary to go into a lot of complex consideration and practice in order to bring forth a fundamental simplicity. Mm-hmm. So we feel like we're living a fundamental simplicity, very profoundly so. But again, some people just prefer much simpler language, and I have often tried to write things more simply as well. You know, fair enough. That's there's good good call for that. Yeah, it seems like uh, you know it's one of those another one of those paradoxical things where complexity and simplicity sort of rise together. You know, and counterbalance one another. I mean, look at the sophistication and complexity of our human nervous systems. Right. And if 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 not for that, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation or able to have these right. these realizations. It takes a very sof- complex, sophisticated instrument to even, you know deal with this stuff or experience this stuff a snail can't do it Um, and so so anyway in summation when you say white hot you're talking about sort of the uh, ultimate fundamental fusion between matter and spirit to put it in a phrase yes or, or or a subjective sensing of intuition realization of that ultimate fusion it doesn't mean that then there's no further growth and change in the individual who's living that in fact on the contrary it tends to stimulate or, or accelerate even more your passage through changes. Sure. Did you want to add, Linda? Well, I can tell a quick story, actually, that might sure. help a, an individual understand an experience of a white-hot um, moment for me. And this was many years ago. We were visiting Ken Wilber in Boulder. We went up on the mountain, and there was this beautiful vista that overlooked the, the mountains and the town below. And Samuel and Ken had been sitting on a rock for a while talking, and I decided to walk over to this precipice. And I'm just looking out at, at the mountains and looking at the valley and the clouds and the sky. And in a moment, that, that fusion was so powerful for me that it felt as if I could literally just take a step off of the edge of the mountain and I would just still be there, immersed as every part of everything that I was perceiving. Like so Carlos I was very, Castaneda. What's that? Carlos Castaneda ended yeah. one of his books that way, stepping off a precipice. You had to wait till the next book to find out what was going to happen to him. <laughs> <laughs> right. So here I am. I'm like maybe a foot away from the edge. And all of a sudden, Ken and Samuel look over at me. And Samuel says, um, honey. <laughs> You're a little too close to the edge. <laughs> and it kind of t- brought me back. You know, yeah. it wasn't like I went, it went away, but I did in that moment, in moments, you know, kind of lost track of time even. I felt so immersed and so submerged as everything that I, I felt huge. Mm. I, and I also felt 
small, you know. I mean, yeah. it was just that connectedness. Mm-hmm. So that was an experience. And many people talk about these kinds of experiences of this white-hot fusion of connectedness, of no yeah. space-time. This happens for me on planes a lot. I like to sit by Oh, them. me too. I love planes Yeah, uh, for that reason among others. It's interesting. I, this it just occurred to me, but my first experience that is reminiscent of what you just described was when I was a kid and I had a high fever, which I was literally hot because mm. I had this high fever. And I sat there in bed having this experience of simultaneous hugeness and tininess, infinite lightness and infinite heaviness. And, and the two of them were just sort of there together at the same time. And I just sat there for the longest time just sort of amazed by that experience. And what you said just reminded me of that. Yeah. yeah thank yeah, you. Thank you. Uh, let, me, let me add a little bit of uh, traditional language here. Uh, mm-hmm. The, the advent of this white-hot quality, the way it comes on in a person, is typically pretty spontaneous. We haven't figured out a way to, you know, kind of guarantee it can get duplicated for everyone. But it may be, it may come about in something like a nirvikalpa samadhi state, a, a, a radical dissolution of everything, the, the whole persona, <laughs> the sense of me, self, world, form, color, object, subject. Or it may come about in a passage where that quality is the essence of it, but there is still perception and cognition taking place to some degree. Right. And so that, that's the heart of what Linda was describing. Mm-hmm. And similarly in, in my process and so forth, when, when this kind of quality emerged, and it was different for me from this second birth awakening. And, and interestingly for me, because I knew that Adi Da pointed to something like this as a next stage beyond the basic quality of awakening that we call conscious embodiment, second birth, I knew it was necessary to regain that because I had had that experience uh, one time in Darshan with him. My eyes were wide open, but there was just this white hot, this this flash of intensification. It in fact took me years to even remember that it had happened. I had to awaken first mm. so that I could actually hold the recollection of what had taken place. Mm. And then it became necessary to duplicate that autonomously in my own work and, and that is part of my story. But mm. let's talk about levels for a minute. One of the criticisms I hear sometimes and have heard for years about waking down and perhaps other things as well, not just waking down, is that, um, you know, it's lowering the bar. You know, people say, there's all these characters around saying, oh, I've had my awakening. And, and people say, well, yeah, what kind of awakening? You've, you're, you're, sort of, you're kind of just cheapening the idea of awakening. It's really something much more profound than you must have had. Because um, you know, you're, you're such a piece of crap. Yeah, you seem like you're such an ordinary. You're so obviously still a flawed mortal with all your stuff hanging out. How can you possibly be awake? (laughs) Well, also, you know, I mean, I could sort of buy into that idea as long as we sort of acknowledge that there are, you know, perhaps many stages of awakening, and that you know, you and, and to not use the term in too static or final a sense, you know, like I have awakened and that is it. Stages not only in terms of 
refinement and development and integration and, and all that stuff on the relative personality level, but also perhaps stages on the absolute level in terms of, you know, I think one can have an awakening <clears throat> to what one feels is sort of the ultimate ground of being and then discover later on that it wasn't so ultimate after all, that there's a sort of a, a deeper settling into something much more uh, fundamental. Mm -hmm. What yeah. do you say to that? Uh, we agree. Yeah. And basically, when when we have people saying, "Well, I'm awake now, and it's it's over, and all's done," we say, "Well, we need to have a discussion because that's not how we view it. That sounds to us like this in this context, the stink of enlightenment." Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's not. It's simply a transition. In fact, we like to say, second birth. It's a big deal. It is a non-dual conscious embodiment fully activated that's what it is and it's just a birth congratulations now you got to get a life you'll go through many other changes as you were pointing out rick not only in terms of the refinement of character and and presence and participation of the relative expression of our existence but also deepenings in that intuition of the great uh, mystery of existence itself so the white heat is one such potential further development, and our sense is that there are many, many other developments possible, and we're happily going through them, or, well, mostly happily. I mean, you know, we're, we're going through the transitions, and we don't find this to be static at all. I understand that you have uh, some sort of, like, uh, questionnaire or test or, or some, some kind of examination that you put people through when they say they've awakened to sort of cert verify that it's genuine. Um, is that so? And what is that about? Well, I wouldn't exactly call it a, a questionnaire. You know, mm -hmm. it's not as static as that or organized. Mm -hmm. um, there are three individuals who are senior teachers in Waking Down that are certified, if you will, to do these this interview process. It's called the Second Birth Interview, and that okay. is myself, Sandra Glickman, and Van Gwen. And what we do is when someone feels like, like they've gone through a, a major transition, the awakening itself, and they're really feeling like they need uh, some guidance or clarification as to where they are in this particular shift, that has been lived consistently and stably for four to six weeks. We won't do an interview process prior to that. Someone needs to really kind of steepen it a little bit mm -hmm. so that they can actually find their own articulation. We sit them down or we do phone conversations, and there is a number of questions that we ask them, but it's, it's actually structured very organically according to the individual. There are very specific questions we need to ask within the context of the interview or the conversation, but it's not, you know, okay, first you ask this and then this and this and this. It's very Can you give me an example of what those questions are? Absolutely. First off, I let people know that the way that I like to do the process of the interview is I ask them what happened. You know, I open it up with them telling me their story, what the experience was maybe tracking back to prior to the experience. Did they have a witness awakening prior to what we call second birth? Because that's a transition also. How did it show up bodily? What's their understanding of consciousness? What is their understanding of the core wound? 
Um, how are they living that? How are they living the paradox of existence? How are they actually being that? I mean, there's a number of different things that we ask along the way. Could you um, please quickly define um, witness awakening versus uh, second birth awakening? Mm-hmm. And, and then after that, I'll ask you to talk a little bit more about core wound. Oh, sure. Well, in our work, we like to talk about embodied feeling witness. Um, and not everyone has this particular opening, but, but most do, where they have an awakening of feeling and sensing and knowing consciousness, sometimes oscillating in and out of form, you know, but, but sometimes they actually feel a presence or the intuition of consciousness maybe behind or above. Um, they sense that the, the witness quality kind of comes and goes and yet not permanently gone. So hence the, it's a, a stable kind of stage of witnessing. Um, something like an observer behind, that was how it was for me, feeling it back here over my left shoulder. I lived that for nine months very consistently, and I knew that it wasn't complete. This this place of what I was feeling and sensing, a more landing in, in what Samuel coined the second birth realization. So it, we like to say embodied feeling because the, it's not merely just outside of oneself, although there's a sense of it being that. It also is very in the feeling sense of, of matter. You know, this is a very embodied process, so people can actually feel the sense of the witness quality of consciousness. Now, do you want to add anything to that? Well, uh, I guess the, the main thing I would say about it is that, that it, is, it, it is accessing that witnessing, observing, noticing, registering ground awareness that is fundamentally impersonal, it's continuous, it's always doing its thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the kind of criticism that people might make from a more traditional perspective is one that we acknowledge is accurate and however we take issue with the whole foundation of that perspective Mm -hmm. so one of the classic points would be well if it's not continuously permanently stabilized as this realization of witnessing that's not it that's a good example of how you guys quote unquote lower the bar like if you don't have it during sleep for instance or if you know when you're going through your daily life you may have had it for a little while pretty strongly and then something comes up and suddenly you're tumbled into some of your stuff, broken zone, whatever you want to call it. And for a period of time, witnessing consciousness is nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. Well, from the very beginning of my work, I began to say to people, based on what had happened with me, uh, people would come and say, oh gosh, I lost the witness. And I would say, hey, I sympathize. I realize that's not what you would have preferred to have happen. But from this evolutionary perspective of integration, you actually need, apparently, to lose the witness. We've even got a, Linda and I have an online course called Get Fierce, Cultivating Consciousness and Discriminative Intelligence. And one of the seven sessions is called Losing the Witness. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's actually from our, admittedly from the the traditional orientation, rather twisted perspective, but from our perspective, it's very straight. It's it's how the the total being 
winds up getting integrated. So we I think say, even traditionally that's legitimate. I think it, from what I understand of tradition, it's, okay. it's understood that it comes and goes and, and, and sort of gets more and more stable in the process until yeah, but in, eventually... In many, in, in many traditions, though, what, or the way people are interpreting it, which might not be what the tradition itself says, but many people are under the impression, I've got to get into the witness so that it's stable all the time. And our orientation is, and therefore, when they're in their stuff, they're feeling, oh God, this is further proof that I'm not yet mature in the practice. I need to learn how to dissociate from my mm -hmm. stuff. And that contributes to the whole dismissal of your story and everything else and all the ways in which you're supposed to stay unidentified with the local personal self. So our Also, it's a misunderstanding of what actually gets disidentified. It's, you know, it's not that some individual component steps apart from the rest of the individuality right. and sits there and watches. It's right. that the universal component is by its nature, you know, um, kind of on its own level and, and is, is right. it's, you know, the ocean is still the ocean and there's waves on the surface of it. <laughs> right. And so then to complete then what happens in the second birth process is that the fundamental sense of a witnessing or observing registering quality of consciousness, awareness, being, and the sense of some kind of still veil of separation, something not being complete, that veil dissolves. There is a sense of a much more obvious unity. Now, one of the things we discovered going through this, just quickly, is that some people have a clear instant of that transition. I did, Linda did, many others do. Quite a number of other people do what we call oozing, where it takes a while for them to figure out, wow, I've, I'm established in that simultaneously being the ocean and the wave. It's obvious, that feeling, knowing of being. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you when it happened. But I can't tell you when it happened. Right. That's right. There are two ways to get wet while taking a walk. One is you get caught in a sudden downpour, and, you're, and you know exactly when it happened. Another is you're walking in a heavy mist, like in the UK, and after a while you realize you're drenched, but you just don't know when it happened. <laughs> I like that. That's a beautiful image. We'll use that. Thank you. Okay, good. It's all yours. <laughs> Another way to speak about the transition to second birth is back in the day, early in my process, I would hear Samuel in his own unique way, and a, another couple who had their awakening with Samuel's help, and then they branched off and started doing their own teaching every um, sittings every Friday night. I would go and sit with them as well as sit with Samuel, and I would hear him talk about how consciousness recognizes itself to be consciousness, recognizes itself to be you, on and on and on, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going, huh? You know, I'm sitting there scratching my head, and I could not put mind or logic around it, which is what I tried to do early on, is make it all linear and logical. It's not. It's very mysterious. And, uh, and until you actually have that, that experience or realization of that occurrence, that complete fusion, again, of consciousness, seeing itself, being itself, being you simultaneously, then it's not quite complete. That's how it was for me anyway. And so in my second birth awakening, that's what happened in a split second. It was so quick. It lit, in a meditation, it literally knocked me backwards, the, in, the intensity of that coming together, that recognition, that realization, recognizing me, it, as all, not separate any longer. 
Hmm. Not a missing piece. Cool. How about core wound? You want to start on core wound? Well, yeah, this is... Uh, it's actually good in the context of discussing the confirmation of the second birth and so forth. And Maybe before I go into core wound, let me briefly go back to that. The, the fact that we had these interviews or conversations with people. Uh, fundamentally, we respect everybody's right to take their stand however they're moved to in their lives. We don't require people to have a, a conversation uh, that confirms, mm -hmm. someone else is confirming their own intrinsic nature. Mm -hmm. Right. But there are a couple of good reasons in our process uh, why that's helpful for people and can, can be extremely important. One is that this is, as we've said, I think, last week, this is not only a self-realization, it is a self-plus-other-field mm -hmm. realization. And the honoring and acknowledging that matter and the world and others and objects have their own intrinsic importance and reality makes it such that there, we see that there is great, often great help in knowing and clarifying what has taken place and, and being, being able to confidently live from that perspective, to have someone who you regard as a trusted representative and holder of that knowledge, if you will, be able upon serious in-depth conversation, these conversations typically take at least an hour to an hour and a half sometimes, mm -hmm. I've heard Linda say, you know, I'm not clear, call me back in a month or six weeks, let's try again. I mean, we don't take it lightly. Uh, but what happens then is that the experience of someone coming from the world, the material world, an other saying to you, yes, it does, it, it's real obvious to me, you've tapped into this. This is what you're established in. That is very empowering for people. It helps them deal with, and this gets to the second point, the changes that one undergoes after such realization in this process mm -hmm. can be extremely challenging. Right. I liken it to learning how to scuba dive in a beautiful, serene, clear water lagoon. You know, the, the, the bottom is 15 to 30 feet below the surface. You can see everything clearly. It's calm. So that's, that's the quality of learning how to go deep. If we could say the water represents your stuff, that's what it's like previous to this realization. After realization, the buffers are stripped away. There's so much less capacity to be able to do some of the practices, for instance, that you used to be able to do to distance yourself from experiencing things or work on it or, you know, be friendly to it, but not really affected. Mm -hmm. And people can feel going through that exposure, which is a much more profound, again, to us, bio-spiritually natural integration of the total structure and dynamics of the psyche. As people are going through that, it can be very disorienting. Mm -hmm. They can come away from it feeling, did I ever realize anything at all? What the hell's <laughs> going on here? Yeah. And we often, in our wake-down, shake-down coaching, which really is coaching them into a deeper divine incarnation, divinely human incarnation, 
we often wind up helping people reframe what they're going through. And when they've had this confirmation of their second birth, that can be very important for them in terms of, hey, this has been confirmed. You know, okay, I'm, you know, I'm kind of losing it here, but let me keep on maturing and, and going through this. And gradually they learn how to be with that stuff without it having the meaning that they've lost the intrinsic realization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They discover, among other things, that they were confusing some of the qualities that they like in the body-mind with the essence of realization itself. Mm. Apropos of our earlier discussion about tradition and all, it's certainly very traditional for a, a teacher or guru to sort of um, give a kind of a final stamp of approval yep. to, to a student's enlightenment and to dispel uh, doubts that might be kind of still muddying the waters, you know. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's right. We always Bo like both on the verge of enlightenment, I think, and also perhaps even after yes. the shift, you know, because there can be a lot of stuff, yes. as you say, to, that needs to be cleared up, and it, it's not a, always easy to go it alone. Yeah. Right. And the the doubt mind can, especially for most, can um, slip in there. But if you're really living the awakened condition, you see the doubt mind for what it is, and it can't fundamentally take away that realization. So that it, again, with the interview process, it really helps individuals integrate much more quickly some of these places of recognition. And oh yeah, that's doubt mind, and here's my consciousness even in the midst of that cannot be thwarted, cannot go away. I am stably established as that. So that's, that's a good that, point. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, one of the things I started saying to people early, because again, I had a good deal of immersion in the Advaita tradition, both before and then during my years with Adi Da, I studied a lot of it from time to time. And uh, in that tradition, I remember reading uh, stories about Ramana and so forth. Uh, and say, well, doubt is the last thing to go before realization. And what we discovered in this process is that really, for many people, not everybody, but for many people, the deeper doubt only gets released afterward by a, a sequence of recognitions in which it dawns on you that, for instance, when a quality of serene, bright, calm radiance disappears, that doesn't mean that you've lost your fundamental realization of unconditioned being. It means that those qualities in the body-mind that you prefer, mm. well, what's not to prefer, uh, aren't sustainable in the flux. So you get surrendered that much more to allowing the flux to be what it is, while still, as Linda was saying, being that much more confident. And this then goes to the question about the core wound. What we mean by the core wound is the, the subjective registration or the subjective juncture of knowing that you are both infinite being and finite being, mm -hmm. and in all the details. So that's why it's good to have brought up these discussions of broken zones and the mm -hmm. stuff, the doubts you can tumble into, because the, the core wound as a realization, it's not that, that its qualities, the, the pain, the distress of existence, the sting of being alive. It's not that that disappears. It's that you become conscious. You're no longer motivated to try to escape a fundamental, essential, existential distress 
that paradoxically is realized to be completely simultaneous, indistinguishable from fundamental wellness, mm. deep joy, serene peace. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a tension, a war in the heart of the being that just is released. And part of the release is allowing existence to have both of these qualities. Hmm. So, well, you, so just, just to come back to that for a second, because Lyndon mentioned that in the context of the second birth interview, if someone comes to us and says, I have this expanded non-dual realization beyond the witness, you know, I'm just being everything and I'm also, you know, here and, and so forth. But it's not really clear to the interviewer that, that they're able to own this. There's a kind of humility, I guess you could say, in acceptance of the core wound. Hmm. And so we, we look for people to be able to acknowledge that both and and not merely be affirming a great realization that to us feels like it's riding above hmm. uh, that deeper existential quality. Is that? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And the core wound sometimes can get confused with core issues, two very different things. Core issues, obviously, issues of life, bro broken zones, things that happen, particular occurrences the core wound is existential to your existence. It's primal, you know, it's, it's just this place where you, you feel and intuit that both and, and, have, and you have to live that from that place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, wounds eventually heal, and maybe you're left with a scar, uh, but what you're saying is that there's always going to be this both and, you know, where you're kind of uh, cosmic and individual at the same time. Yeah. Um, and to give so, so is, is wound really the best term to use? Because, you know, it implies that there's something really wrong with that that ought to be tended to and, and cured or healed. Yeah, we, we've, we've had that. We've had this discussion many <laughs> times many over the years for that very reason. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, I just wanted to say uh, the core wound gets transformed and transmuted into the conscious wound. So uh -huh. the wound is it's still a wound. Yes, there, but yes. it's but it's conscious. In second birth, you are aware of it. You are being that, and yet you you are not you're not controlled by it. Right. You're not swallowed up in it. You don't lose yourself because you are conscious of it. Uh, yeah, I, I like to, I like to say that the the unconscious core wound transmutes into the conscious yes. core wound. Yes. And that is the deeper implication of this simultaneous full divinity and reality of both spirit and matter, both the eternal and the temporal, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's part of that deeper acceptance of the totality of being alive. I'm trying to think of examples of, of people who might have actually healed the wound and, and, you know, become so cosmic in their individuality that there was no dichotomy anymore, but I can't think of any. I mean, you know, Nisargadatta and Ramana both died of cancer, and I'm sure that was no picnic. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, as long as we're breathing, you know, there's going to be um, uh, some faint remain well the, the sanskrit for, for this is uh lesha vidya which means faint remains of ignorance and it, it was you know mm -hmm. my my understanding that as long as you're alive that's got to be there 
otherwise you're not going to be able to function as yeah. a human being you know well again those to me those pictures of the ultimate liberation are themselves worthy of question yeah, yeah. i mean maybe so i know ramana used to talk about prarabdha karma vestigial uh -huh. karma Right. You know, after realizations, people would say, you know, why are you still even alive now that you're free? And he says, well, the body-mind is just winding down like a clock. Yeah. Rabda karma. But our orientation is one that uh, kind of has this exciting potential to it that, that also, it's not like it came out of the blue. I mean, if you read Aurobindo and the Mother, they're also talking along these lines, it's like, hey, maybe there's something about matter that actually makes this the place of potentially the most transformative work. Mm -hmm. And so to us, this is not dumbed down Dharma. <laughs> right. Uh, or, or what was that, the lowering the bar. Um, or, or if you want to say lowering, we're questioning whether lowering means making less. <laughs> maybe it's a deepening of our total nature that's going on. Good. Well, I wanted to save a little bit of time. Um, uh, you were talking about starting a university, and you you mentioned last week, uh, you know, a certain stage, and implying there might be other stages. It's a big deal to start a university, at least an accredited one. So, uh, is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking? You're just calling it a university, and it's going to be you know, on a, on a smaller scale, and, and what, what's, what is its function, and what stages were you referring to? I'm not sure what the reference to stages was, so we might have to get back into that, but... Okay. Yeah, who knows, is, by the way, one of the great inquiry questions, speaking of history. <laughs> yeah. So who knows what's going to come of this intent, but we feel very strongly that we have something useful to contribute, that there are aspects of what we're contributing that we don't see already happening and available elsewhere, and ways in which we bring them forward that are unique, and that are already of great use to quite a number of individuals, and we'd like to make it more widely available, not only for people in our own time, but also for people in time to come. So our orientation uh, of that kind, uh, and Linda will talk about the heart of that, which is, well, I'll let you use your language, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, a very, it's a very deeply felt uh, intent to serve and, and, and give and make, make available something that many people find extremely special. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we get letters and emails and messages from people all the time who can't express strongly enough their gratitude. Uh, one, one of our friends, one of the teachers in Waking Down expressed that uh, he called up my father once last summer to thank him for having been my father. <laughs> and his apparently his expression of thanks was so profound that it really blew my dad's mind. Mm -hmm. And you know, it wasn't like I set him up to go do that. Right. So. We're getting in the self plus other field of humanity that there's something here that's worth clarifying further, making available in a number of forms. I think what, I, what you may be referring to as stages is, is in terms of different focuses of the work itself, which we're looking to have show up in several different schools 
in this university. And even though right now, and maybe for the rest of our lives, it's going to be uh, the little red schoolhouse version of the <coughs> university, we're looking to lay the foundations for something that can go on and on. Mm -hmm. And to, while we're alive, to turn that over to people who are able to carry it forward in uh, alignment with, a high integrity alignment with a lot of the details of what really matters to, to Linda and me, uh, and yet to continue to evolve and innovate and be very creatively present and expressive in their own times and places. And we, mm -hmm. the motto we have for this that speaks to both of our hearts uh, is awakening and empowering leaders for the third millennium. And we really hope it will go on and on and on, that it could last hundreds and hundreds of years. It may sound like a wildly grandiose scheme, given that we're this little tiny seedling at the moment. We're picturing a great oak. But uh, that's what we feel called to do. We feel the work requires that. And, you know, a question that might come up, just to mention this briefly, is, well, isn't that what waking down in mutuality already is? And our answer to that is yes and no. In certain ways it is, but we had to let waking down and mutuality be so democratically structured, which it is now. We don't run any of its organizations. We're not on its boards of directors, whatever. It, it, people are free to, much freer in that context, to take the teachings and go with the parts of them that they want to. And we always want that to be there. Mm -hmm. But we also want to establish something that takes some of the things that mean a great deal to us, including our other teachings. We have a teaching on relationship and a teaching on life purpose or destiny that are in some ways distinct from the waking down teachings. Mm -hmm. So that's the purpose of the university. And, uh, Remains to be seen how much we can do with it in this lifetime, but that's our ambition and our goal for this, the rest of our careers, really. Yeah, another piece real quick is that it will enable individuals to maybe find their own voice and articulation of the work that we do and maybe some pieces of waking down as well, where they're not going through the other structures and when Samuel said we had to to give over the work, it was had because that was our heart's impulse yeah. and drive in our being to give the work to the teachers to create this democratic structure, right. which is now f in full gear, you know, with our teachers association and the Waking Down and Mutuality organization that is run by other senior teachers and teachers. It's brilliant and they're doing a fabulous job. The university that we'll be pursuing, and again, seedling form right now, is to empower people who have a need to take a, a very unique teaching of Samuel in mind and say, I really want to share this. And so we've formed affiliate programs that we're still in the midst of structuring um, more efficiently for individuals to be able to teach without having to go through other forms of, uh, quote-unquote, being a, a teacher of waking down. Yeah, so that's yeah. a piece of it. Great. Well, I just noticed that when I put up your video and everything on my site last week, I didn't actually, I, I didn't remember to link to your sites. So... Um, I'll have you email me 
um, you should look over the little bio that I put on the site and see if you like that or, and send me any changes you'd like me to make. Okay. But also, please do send me any links to other sites and a little explanation of what each site is so a person can read that before bothering to click on it. Yeah. And uh, that way people will be able to get in touch with you and, you know, get into whatever aspect of what you do appeals to them. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, people can dip their toes in very gradually and very tenderly, and they can dive right in and do the big splash. <laughs> yeah, we and I actually, I was listening to an interview with you a little while ago with some, I forget the guy's name, was it Terry Patton or one of yeah, those people? Ter who does, Might have been Terry. Uh -huh. Yeah, and, and you you actually made this little offer at the end where you said that if, if people want to call in and have a brief chat with you for yeah. you know, 15 minutes or something, you're open to that. Absolutely. So, um, if people want to do that, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, what they should do is email us at info at Saniel, that's S-A-N-I-E-L, mm -hmm. Saniel and, A-N-D, Linda, L-I-N-D-A, dot uh -huh. com. Info okay. at Saniel and Linda dot com. And uh, let us know that you'd, you'd like to have a chat with us, and we'll do our best to set something up uh, as soon as we can, we've got a lot going on, so it could, it could take a little while to be able to, to have the conversation. One of our heart's desires, though, is to grow the work, reach more people, reach more, what I like to say, hungry, hurting hearts yeah. in the world who are feeling like maybe some of the great tradition, traditions that they had been involved in aren't working for them anymore, and they're exploring you know, or even people who are just feeling like they're needing something more in their lives, you know, to be more grounded, more authentic and integral. And we, we're so passionate about reaching as many people as we can because our world, hmm, I'm going to joke up about this, our world needs it. Yeah, yeah. And everybody who feels that hurting drive or that, or that impulse to be here and to serve others in their own unique way bravo and yeah. blessings yeah. And, 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 and this is this is where our heart goes every day gets me out of bed every morning <laughs> that's 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 how it is. that or the cat right yeah <laughs> that's how it is for for both of us really and and uh, yeah. i i, I want to to add a little bit more um if people would like to have a conversation with us we also suggest uh, go to our more introductory site that is heartgazing.com. And there's a free four-session course. There are about half-hour audio uh, of each of us talking, um, just four sessions, uh, called Transmission of the Heart. And you can plug in with us that way. And, mm -hmm. of course, there are, there are videos of us gazing with people. We talk about gazing and how that works. Uh, in that course, the very first session, and there, there are gazing videos of us now up on YouTube. There's quite a lot of material on YouTube. Well, uh, there, there is there's a good amount. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So we welcome people to do that as also part of. Uh, if they want to talk with us, it would be good to get more of a sense of what we're offering. Although I have to say, if people have listened to this several hours of uh, your conversation with us. We also welcome you to go ahead yes. and contact us directly. Yeah. I mean, this is Just quite call us. this is quite this is quite an initiation and introduction. You've paid your dues if you've listened to these. You've things. Paid yeah. your dues. 
must be interested. Maybe, yeah. Or at least curious, so. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of wrap up by kind of harking back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, which is that, I mean, in light of what Linda was just saying about how the world needs this and, and, and so on, we're all doing what we can, as yes. the Beatles sang. That's and, um, true. And, and if somebody doesn't like, you know, your particular emphasis on the ego or whatever, then fine, you know, they don't have to do this. They, they can do something else. But, you know, I would just suggest that we all, Rodney King said, all learn to get along and, uh, yeah. you know, and appreciate all the contributions people are making, even if it doesn't resonate with one person, then fine, something else will resonate with him. And certainly I know, you know, many people who are good friends of mine uh, for whom your thing very much does resonate, and uh, they, they seem none the worse for having gotten involved in it. In fact, they, they seem to have benefited very profoundly and are, you know, really wonderful people to be around. So, you know, I, I think we should just all cut ourselves some slack and not get too rigid about, you know, philosophical distinctions about things we may not actually have even experienced yet ourselves, debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Instead, let's just, uh, you know, appreciate all the, all the wonderful expressions of, of spiritual development that are available in the world today. Absolutely. And uh, n- never consider our own one to be the, the best in the world, you know. That's Maybe it's the true. best for us, but it's at this right. time, but it's not necessarily for everyone. Yeah. That's exactly Thank right. You. Very, Thank you. Very well, well said. Well put. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, in that sense, then, that the, the, the rubber meeting the road of how do we live? How much angel radiance mm-hmm. can we bring into life, if you want to use that kind of language, rather than debating it endlessly, merely? Uh, how much of, in, in our language, a human son, S-U-N, can, can you become? How much can you love and benefit others and be a benign and fundamentally helping presence in this world? Mm-hmm. So we both love to say, and Linda, I think, said it earlier, wherever you go speaking to each person listening and, and viewing uh, this discussion, blessings on your journey, wherever it leads you. and. Mm-hmm. Even if we disagree with some details of how your process, your philosophy, your practice is unfolding, or we don't hold it the same way, ours the same as you do, uh, we're so grateful that you're here doing your work, doing your peace. And I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if millions and billions of people were having this kind of conversation Mm. rather than some of the other ones that are going on yeah. in their unfortunate ways. The world so, would be a paradise, I think. It would be a much, much more benign and Indeed. serene place. Yeah. Mm. So Great. Well, that's probably a good point to conclude on. So. Well, okay. thank you, thank you, thank you so much for yeah. your time. This has been, last week and this week has just been such a blessing for us. We've really enjoyed yeah. being with you. You're a superb interviewer and conversationalist and we really enjoyed this very much. Yeah, thank you Linda. I want to also say, and I completely second what Linda said to you Rick, one of the things that I noticed that really touched my heart is that you you work very hard to bring your listeners into the conversation. Yeah. And that's very moving and that is in itself very empowering and and acknowledging of everybody's 
authentic, uh, intrinsic meaning and and you know reason for being here and having something to contribute. Mm-hmm. So I really, really appreciate that. Well, thank you for the compliments. And, and I, too, have really enjoyed talking to you guys, which is why I set up a second one. I mean, it's, ah. it's, it's really, really been good. And, you know, if I could, I'd make this a call-in show, you know, and let people all participate, although that can get a little chaotic. But um, <laughs> That'd be cool, though. Yeah, might might be able to have do that technically at some point. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the time being, it's not. And yet there are ways people can still participate after the fact. Um, you know, if you go to batgap.com, you'll see this interview and all the interviews I've done. And with each one, there's a place where you can click on the comments link and it leads you into an area where people are having discussions about that particular in- interview, although, of course, they also veer off on various other topics as they go along. But um, So there's that opportunity. There's also a Yahoo chat group that you can find a link to on batgap.com where some discussions take place. And, uh, you know, this is you can, you can listen to this as a podcast if you don't like to sit in front of your computer for hours on end watching things. Uh, you can do it while you're driving. I, I have a friend who's a, a neuro, neurologist who listens to this during his commute every day back and forth to work. Um, so all that's there. There's also a place to uh, sign up for emails if you'd like to be, receive an email about once a week when an, each new interview goes up. Um, you'll see that on the site. And there's also a donate button if you would like to make donations. Just today I ran out and spent 100 bucks on a little hard drive that I need for shuttling files around and stuff. And so there are expenses like that. And if, if people are enjoying the interview and, and feel inclined mm-hmm. to donate, just click that button. And uh, I keep the finances of this whole project separate from personal finances and only use any donations that come in to further enhance this, <coughs> this project. So thanks again, Samuel and Linda, and, so, uh, and thank you to everyone who has been watching or listening, and we will see you next week. Blessings. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rick. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.